1: T4, Mark, gee, that we're cranking them out every week, aren't we, um, without a fail. And I think that's the key to having loyal listeners and, and subscribers, having um, regular, regular podcasts, Mark. So what have you been up to um, To Dump you in it already, Mark? What have you been doing this week? Well, my big
0: thing this weekend, Brendan, was the um, we had a little uh, uh, um, staff training uh, day on the weekend, particularly aimed at our veterinarians. Um, and one of the uh, one of uh, one of our veterinary support personnel, the wonderful Emma, um, she has a um, a beautiful jungle python, a jungle carpet python. Um, who goes by the name of Murderface, and so uh, part of the, the session, if you like, was to do a consult with uh, Murderface and show everyone, and like how I would do a, a consult with a snake like this, and in an attempt to um, pass on some of, you know, the dregs of knowledge that we've learned over the years handling these animals. And um, and I think there was also an ulterior motive. I think that um, there was generally the thought that Murderface was so, would live up to his uh, <laughs> rather colourful name, and there might be a bit of a a, a, um, a bloodbath at the end of it that um, would make everyone laugh at the boss. But fortunately, um, Murderface did exactly, you know, when you sort of follow the rules and you, you say, Oh, I'm going to do this, and generally, most snakes—you never follow the rules, <laughs> Mark.
1: You must admit,
0: most, you most, push the boundaries. Most snakes will do this and not bite you, and um, and then he didn't. He did exactly as he was supposed to, and it, uh, um, uh, uh, I ended up with no particular uh, bleeding wound. He only. St- a couple of times and they were half-hearted, sort of leave-me-alone ones. And um, and yeah, I think it was a good opportunity, a beautiful, colourful snake um, that uh, could have left me very embarrassed, but I was able to pass on just one or two gems of wisdom about how to handle those snakes in the consult room, Brendan. Excellent. Well done. Well done. (laughs) Although I think the staff completely would have been happy to be laughing at me as I dripped
1: red stuff out of the room. As murder face was attached to your face, yes, um, and I do have a photo from the internet um, that I stole from somewhere of of exactly that—a um, um, person who was doing a demonstration um, to the public uh, with a snake, and the snake's latched onto the person's um, head. Um, it's quite a dramatic <laughs> photo. <Mark. laughs> Um, which reminds me of a client I had many years ago. Thank goodness they're not a client anymore, and they brought in their, their, their very much, supposedly very much loved tiger snake. And um, he came into the consult room with his tiger snake and he just, Grabbed it out of the bag, just gently grabbed it out of the bag and draped it across his forearm. He held his arm, forearm sort of horizontally, and um, just said, Here's, you know, Pussycat or whatever the snake's um, name was. Isn't, isn't she beautiful? Um, and um, thrust her um, into uh, my eye line um, without any restraint at all, and just having it draped across his um, forearm there. And I, um, yeah, apart from a few expletives, I, I suggested that perhaps we, we should consider restraining the the snake, um, regardless of how Placid he thinks his tiger snake is. Um, and We should point out for our international listeners that the tiger snakes are
0: considered one of the, you know, Australia has nine of the 10 top deadliest terrestrial snakes in the world, and the tiger snake is considered, I think, number three or four at the moment. So when someone does just dribble one over their arm and point it at your face. You have every reason to let loose with a few expletives, I think, Brendan.
1: Yes, and I think it was, well, um, funnily enough, it was one of the few times when... um, (laughs) We didn't end up with a disaster with um, a tiger snake in the clinic and, um, yeah, we didn't have to call the ambulance that time anyway, Mark. <laughs> I can't remember what he was in the clinic for, but yes. So, yes, staff training, very important. Um, I must do some more staff training, um, especially about venomous reptiles as well. Um, I think we should jump into it. That reminds me of an email, Mark, and I've just flicked it across to you um, just Two minutes ago, as you were speaking, from a long-term listener Nicholas um, from the US um, and a subscriber, and he's also asked us a few questions over the years. And he just so sort of saw his first spotted python. Mark, um, I don't know whether you've seen the email. Um, perhaps you can pull that up as I'm as I'm talking here. I am um, reading it right now. And he's looking for some detailed husbandry information of the species um, because he hasn't seen one of these before. And the snake presented for anorexia and dissectiasis, so trouble shedding and potentially showing signs of respiratory infection. Although in his email he it says, I was showing signs of respiratory infection. Well, he should have stayed home and um, used a handkerchief. Um, I presume you meant the snake. Uh, my plan is to get some radiographs as well as baseline bloods as we start some treatment, exactly what I would be doing. And I suppose I would always be going back to basics with a snake, regardless of species, Mark, that is showing signs of being not quite right. You no know, shedding difficulties can just be an indication of the obvious that we always talk about, poor husbandry inadequate adequate husbandry. So I'll be quizzing the client on... What is his setup like? Um, same with the anorexia. Um, you know, How often is it normally feeding? Um, has it skipped several feeds or just one or two feeds? Um, have they changed the feeding program? Um, what's the hygiene like in the enclosure as well? Um, and, and yeah, just going back to basics, um, thinking simple and um, getting some blood, baseline blood. Bloods are certainly the first place to go. Um Any comments about what he should be doing as far as getting some detailed husbandry information on these um, Antaresia-type species, Mark?
0: Well, the good thing about these guys, Brendan, as you well know, is that they're... they're pretty robust snakes. All the the uh, uh, children's python, the spotted python, the Antoria species, are, um, they don't get to the relatively large sizes of um, of our carpet snakes or um, uh, the other the olive pythons, water pythons. They they stay relatively small, and they're very uh, um, they're friendly snakes. They're easy to handle, and they're fairly robust in my experience. Um, where they of the the uh, The snakes that, um, you know, funnily enough that we get asked this because I recently had a look at the, uh, at the species that we do regular examinations on regular health checks. And obviously as a veterinary hospital, we send out reminders for people to bring their animals in regularly for a health exam and, uh, People who own spotted pythons seem to be the best at bringing their snakes in. As a percentage of the total number of spotted pythons we have, um, they are uh, definitely the, they stand out head and shoulders as the ones that people bring in more free, more regularly for their annual exam. Um, and we we do see uh, um, you know the usual maladjustment, uh, failure of normal husbandry, inappropriate temperature gradients leading to um, uh, anorexia and uh, dyssectosis and uh, uh, possibly even respiratory tract infections. Um, So they do fit into that sort of standard pattern of problems. Um, I think we have, I'll probably directly, um, I'll send it to you. We've got um, uh, anteresia... uh, uh, handout, husbandry handout at work, and I'll make sure we post it on this site. But um, the good thing is that they sort of are almost like our model um, snake. You know, there's uh, particularly other snakes that we have to adjust our sort of standard care for um, but these guys, there, they do fit into that uh, relatively standard uh, husbandry practice. They're they're more terrestrial snakes, more fossorial snakes than um, than maybe many of our other pythons who uh, like spend a fair bit of time in trees. Um, but they're they're um, they're not hard to keep, and uh, and so I think um, the, the The data set, the uh, initial database that uh, Nick is setting out to get will give him some good guidance. um, And then refining those husbandry uh, details will probably set this snake on the – it's always been my circumstance that they do tend to get better, these guys.
1: Well, it would be great if you – yeah, perhaps um – Nicholas Mark will be emailing you that summary very shortly. Then I think send it direct to him, Mark, because you know what happened if you send it to me, I'll send it back to you, and you'll send it back to me. And eventually, Nicholas may may end up with that. So perhaps if you just send it over to him, I'd be interested to hear whether or not that um how popular. They are in the, and Nick's from the US. I think, um, how popular that this particular species is in the States. Perhaps, um, they're becoming, um, becoming a popular snake over there, Mark. Yes. So thanks for that, Nick. And yeah, we always welcome emails vetgurus at gmail.com. I reckon we're going to jump into our first news story, Mark. And, um, You know, you know. I've been trying to relax lately with a bit of bit of um, woodwork and a bit of photography, but these sort of articles really, really get my goat, Mark. Um, and that's these dog naming um, convent. And these breeds, these these I call them pretend breeds, and they're all crossbreeds. And and these people that call all these doodles, you know, these dogs that they call doodles, and now they have doodles that are supposedly the subsets of doodles. Mark, um, if you knew that, I didn't. Know um, that. These are the you know the, there's labradoodles, there's golden doodles. Um, so that this is from the, our, one of our favourite. Um, news sites, the Mother Nature Network. What's the deal with doodle dogs? From labradoodles and golden doodles to schnoodles and woodles and poodle mixes craze continues to be popular. Um, and it just gives me the irritants market. It just really peeves me off. Um, these And these are dogs that some of these are going for, well, in the article they're talking about $2,500. And I certainly know clients who have purchased poodle crosses, Um that go for well north of 2000 Australian dollars, Mark. And um, the article's mainly talking about people are trying to get these as registered breeds eventually. And some of these ones, you know, sheep a doodles, Mark, old English sheepdog cross with poodles. Schnoodles which are the schnauzer poodles and and woodles mark woodles are soft coated wheaten terriers crossed with with poodles mark. <laughs> it's interesting and then there're even oh, it's interesting like, how the, the
0: the uh, the the poodle seems to be like very central to these complex crosses and um, and i think that's the reason for that is that there's a uh, a reputation that poodle crosses will shed less but um, but I don't know that, I don't know that that's entirely well. I, I I'm yet to see hard evidence that uh, that that ends up being the case. I think the dogs uh, that come out of these crosses are, are just what you'd expect as crosses. They have a wide variety of characteristics, um, some some between the parent breeds and some outside the parent breeds. Um, I. I I'm much like you, Brendan, I get on my high horse in this circumstance where people take um, uh, two different breeds and hybridise them and whack a fancy name on them and a fancy price tag. Um, and particularly when the breeder establishment are going Um, You know, making we've got breeders now who regularly have maybe a dozen tests, DNA tests or radiographic tests on their parent animals to try and maximise the the good that goes to the next generation. Um, And well, I can't tell you that I'm seeing in these crosses that same dedication to removing genetic faults from the offspring. Um, so I'm with you. I'm a bit angry about the popularity of the oodles of doodles.
1: Yes, the one we saw lately was a a moodle, Mark, a moodle. You've probably seen a few moodles, which is a cross between a Maltese and a poodle, I think, um, a moodle. Although um, it used to be called a multi malti so a crossbred between a Maltese and a poodle. So they originally called it multipoo but I think people didn't like the name Poo. It is a bit ugly, isn't it? So they changed it to Moodle. So, you know, if you search for Moodle, you'll find lots and lots of um, sites talking about breeding of, of Moodle. And, you know, they're just poodle Maltese crosses to me, Mark, and they always will yep. be. I'm with you all the way on that. I always will be. So that's my first news story, which went on for probably six minutes longer than it should um, because we've given it more airtime than we should have. So what's your your first news story? Something zen and and relaxing? Of course it is, Brendan. You know my news
0: stories. Often often relate to some calming, uh, pleasant thought. This one's about um, – this one is – it's a uh, review of – an international study led by Monash University ornithologists, and they have uh, looked at how the variation in rainfall and temperature can affect the colours of birds. So, there are two sort of um, uh, conflicting general principles uh, in this uh, argument. Um, A couple of of centuries ago, uh, a scientist named Constantine Glosier Notice that animals living in tropical regions tended to be more pigmented and often darker pigmented. Um, it, this observation was uh, synthesised into lodges rule, which predict that uh, predicted that animals should be darker in warmer and wetter regions, possibly because those darker animals were better camouflaged in tropical rainforest. You know the shadows and whatever. But there's another rule. There's always another rule. And this isn't the basketball player who we've been talking about. This is Bo Gertz's rule, um, which predicts that darker animals should occur in colder regions because the darker colors absorb more solar radiation, which helps with thermoregulation. Now, these obviously, these two rules are, are general rules, um, and they obviously would apply to individual species. Uh, based on the characteristics of those species, so um, an animal that was in the canopy and in the sunlight in tropical areas wouldn't need those darker colours, and an animal that was um, uh, in uh, in maybe uh, um, in the the uh, cooler parts of the world but spent a lot of time um, in the sun or a more Mediterranean-type uh, climate in a cooler part of the world might not need that uh, darkening effect. So there are variations to both Bogut's and Glodger's rules. Um, but uh, it, this article talks about how change climate uh, change might in fact start to affect those things and in particular how um Humidity and rainfall might then be an added factor. And I wonder whether uh, the ornithologist in question, Mr. Delhi, will have um, his rule superimposed over Glodgers and Bogert's rule um, so that we can finally synthesize all three and predict what uh, density of color and pigmentation will occur in each of the bird's feathers, Brendan.
1: So many rules, Mark. So many rules. <laughs> I wonder if you can apply that to humans as well. Oh, don't go there. Don't leave that. Leave that well <laughs> <Okay>. alone. <laughs> Coloration and. Um, where people come from and, um, yes, no, we'll leave that. Um, well, my my final news story is one, it's, it's, it's a very practical one, Mark, and I hope you've been um, practising this and you've been using that. And that is how old mascara wands can help wildlife, Mark, and I hope you've been saving all your old mascara wands because there's lots of refuges and one in particular, a nonprofit wildlife sanctuary in North Carolina, that has been asking people to donate used mascara wands so they can be used to help care for animals. Not because they want to glam them up, Mark, and make them look good um, for photograph session. It's because they're fantastic at grooming these little creatures um, and they even use it for for scraping some of the turtles as well, Mark, these little muskets. So they like the little, you know, remember when you used to do the chemistry practicals at university and you had those little little um cleaners for the pipettes and the tubes those little um um what were they called um what pipe they cleaners? cleaners, just cleaners. When well, the pipe cleaners, yeah, pipe cleaners. Um, they look a little bit like pipe cleaners, don't they? Little mascara ones. So, um, and they've they get thousands of these um mascara ones being donated from all across the world, including I'm proud to um, announce Australia. Um, and they mention it in the article. Um, to this non profit organisation, they use it to groom these animals to remove some of the ectoparasites because they've just got. Fine little tips to them, haven't they? These mascara ones, and those, and, um, I also keep my keep my bushy eyebrows looking um, looking a bit more sedate. Mark, um, 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 so I, I like using them as well. They do just quietly. And um, the person who um, they interviewed for this, um, Kimberly, Kimberly Brewster. Um, was was overwhelmed, Mark, Um, and she mentions, um, and I quote her, the response to the simple request for mascara wands has been astounding and she was a co-founder of this um, this um, charity. I honestly have trouble wearing mascara now. The outpouring of compass- compassion brings tears to my eyes. Well, there you go. She needs to use the mascara ones a bit more often, Mo. Almost daily, as I read messages, notes, and comments from people all over the world who care about animals, the environment, and just want to donate their mascara ones. <laughs> Although I'm a little bit annoyed, having said all of that, because you look at this picture from this article, and it's another Mother Nature Network um, one um, of the ones, um, a big bundle of these ones, and that, tell you what, Mark, there's a hell of a lot of plastic there. <laughs> I, I was when I first looked at this, I thought there's a a subset of feel good
0: stories, often um, internet, you know, spread through memes on Facebook or whatever, um, where people have the opportunity to do something relatively modest, let's say, um, and something that may not actually have that profound effect on the conservation of species in our world. And I think those things are hard to do. I don't think there is any way that it's easy to do those things. Um, but these people who donate their mascara wands, I think they're... um. They might be stealing some feel-good sensations for not much reason, Brendan. I put it out there that um, that the, the uh, extreme release of endorphins and enkephalins associated with donating your used mascara wands is disproportionate to the amount of good you are doing. I'm just saying.
1: So are you trying to say that these people go out and um, feel good about it and then get another Botox <laughs> injection? Um, when they go out and buy some more mascara ones, is that what you're saying? I agree with you <laughs> that there's an awful lot of plastic there, and um,
0: and uh, and maybe the production of that plastic is just one small thing that contributes to why these animals are in care in the first place.
1: Yes. But if it, if if it encourages somebody who who would not otherwise think about caring for wildlife or the thoughts that wildlife need need looking after, um, perhaps there is a there is a slight positive are, in it. Somewhere. You are such Maybe a
0: glass half full sort of guy, Brendan. <laughs> Maybe not. I don't know. What's your last, well, last story, Mark? Unsurprisingly, my last story has to do with neuroses, and I I really I enjoyed this story. Uh, which, as usual, is from our. F- it's a, re- a review of an article um, published on PLOS that's on the Mother Nature Network. Um, but it carries some interesting um, questions about science um, that uh, that I thought would be um, interesting to 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 consider. The, the whole argument is that if your cat is neurotic, um, then it may well be your fault. Um, and so um, the whole study was based on a um, a bit of a, a uh, uh, um, was it a, a questionnaire? Yes. Uh, um, in the UK, there was a survey asking people about their household, about their cat's overall health, about, um, you know, certain, does it vomit, does it, uh, uh, um, and then a series of specifically Behavioural issues designed to tease out whether those cats would be uh, would be suffering from neuroses or anxiety, um, and then the humans who answered the the survey about their household and their cat answered the forty four item Big Five personality inventory, um, which would allow researchers to classify the humans. Um, and what they found uh, digging into this data was that. Um, was that the cats uh, that were most neurotic, that had most uh, signs of very anxious behaviour, actually belonged to people who had the same characteristics? Um, and there is a little bit of a, um, a suggestion that um, that these, this correlation, that uh, anxious cats are often. Uh, kept by anxious people, um, that there may be some causation there, and I suppose that's the scientific distinction that I would uh, be interested in exploring further. Uh, I'd, ex- I'd be interested in the um, researchers exploring further. Is is the the fact that the owners demonstrate some uh, traits that could be classified as neurotic? Does that necessarily cause those problems in their cats? or does it make them more sensitive are all cats neurotic and just neurotic owners notes notice it uh, are there there's some, there's some interesting questions that come out of it brendan
1: does it make you neurotic mark that's the question does it make you feel a little bit worried about things
0: yes you? makes me neurotic <laughs> the whole study makes me
1: nervous and anxious it does. It does. No. Um you do yeah. You, you have a okay, cat at we home, have don't two you? Cats. Yes. Did I tell you the story about cats at my place? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. Um my my lovely wife and it does not like cats, so I've um I haven't had a cat for many, many years, Mark, and um it's making me a little bit neurotic. <laughs> Not having a cat here. Maybe one day I'll I'll I'll, uh, I'll talk her around. What's, it, An- um, What's Annie's particular? Um, is there is there something about cats? Neurosis. Um, it is. She finds them, and I quote: "Squishy, squishy. They're, they're squishy. If you lift a cat, or touch a cat, they're too squishy." <laughs> That's um, what she typically says. So. I can't argue with that, you know, if somebody finds it squishy. The <laughs> cat's squishy. So there you go. No, we don't have a cat um at home. So I was I was listening in rapt attention. That's why there was a little bit of a delay with my response there because I was being soft. Um, I was thinking about Yes, yeah, so I was thinking about having a cat at home. Um Okay, let's jump into our um, main story, Mark, and this is a, well, just a little bit of a a review of a previous topic, and it is on urinary tract problems in guinea pigs, and we have actually covered this before. It was way back, Mark, in the Wayback Machine, it was in episode number two, Mark, which was, what, well over a year ago now, wasn't it? Um, So episode two, we did cover urinary tract problems in guinea pigs, but we have had some emails and comments about urinary issues in guinea pigs um, since then or many times since then so I thought we'd just touch on a couple of the aspects that um, that may perhaps summarise um, what's going on and our current thoughts about urinary issues and um, tips and techniques and, and traps I suppose um, with dealing with some of the urinary problems we've seen in guinea pigs Mark so we may not go through everything that we covered in that first um, episode so if our listeners to vetgurus.com where you can search for episode two, and you can listen to that one, and you can see how far we've progressed, <laughs> or perhaps not with, with our with our podcasting skills from episode um, number two, Mark. Um, I'm not quite sure what um, what um, microphones we were using at that stage, and what what um, program we were, were probably using, so. shouting really oh, loudly at that. from across the room at each other yeah um um, i'm a little bit scared about going back to listen to those earlier episodes yeah so urinary tract issues in guinea pigs mark and i'd I'd like to kick it off with the with um jumping straight into urinary calculi mark and um just a couple of comments that i always um mention to vets um emailing or contacting our clinic about it is that it's very common in my experience, anyway, to see urinary um, stones in the distal urethra um, in both males, but especially in the females, Mark. And I, I, and it's probably why I've decided on this topic this week. I had one last week, a very long term client of ours with many piggies and they travel a a very long distance you know probably three or four hours to see us with their piggies and um that one of their female guinea pigs was seen at a a local um clinic for for string urea for straining and and vocalizing and passing some bloody urine and this is a, a guinea pig that was very prone to getting urinary issues mark and it was seen at one of the local clinics and um catheterized and um, flushed out their bladder and um, it didn't seem to help very much at all. Um, So we saw it earlier this week, Mark, and um, it did have a a urinary stone that was um, in the distal urethral region. And interestingly enough, when I anesthetized and passed the catheter, the catheter passed very easily around that stone mark in the distal urethra, um, but I could palpate it fairly easily. So I think, um, and we obviously saw it on a radiograph as well, so my my first comment would be um, always when you have a guinea pig with urinary issues and they're straining or vocalising to urinate, always palpate that urogenital region. And it's amazing, Mark, how many of them you can palpate a stone just on the clinical examination. Do you find you can palpate them
0: fairly, fairly regularly? But I
1: also would um, I would definitely point out the value of uh,
0: radiographs because there are, while a significant proportion of them, you can definitely feel the, the uh, stone in the distal urethra um there are some that uh really have caught me by surprise when we've taken images um where we have that that uh series of classic signs the particularly the vocalization and a little tinge of blood often that's uh we we'll occasionally get um frank blood in the urine but more often it's a tinge but with signs like that and the stranguria i i i that's a variable one. We definitely have some that uh, that for a period of time will uh, frequently and and unproductively attempt to urinate. But um, like your case, I think, and and like the passage of uh, of the u- catheter would suggest, I think that there's uh, altered shape to the urethra which allows the the um, often surprisingly large stone to sit uh, off center, maybe in an outpocketing a. Uh, of the urethral mucosa um, and urine and catheters can relatively easily pass by um, notwithstanding the guinea pig still feels very uncomfortable um, and will sometimes have a little bit of staining of blood so I think taking in a radiograph um, can often be a very useful thing but definitely they're they're very often palpable aren't they Brendan
1: yes and I think it's in important for a Even the guinea pigs that um, you may consider just as a urinary tract inflammation or infection to always take radiographs because as you hinted at there, you may even have a a huge bladder stone in that guinea pig that's been sat there for many, many days to weeks and um, you mess around with um medical therapy and if you ha- had have taken that radiograph fairly early on you'd you'd realize that there's some um, something else you need to deal with um so how do you deal with those um urethral stones mark your technique? Well, the um uh, the the much the the interesting thing i suppose
0: is that it's different to how we use uh how we treat cats with um Cats, we're trying probably to um, gently retro pulse the um, struvite crystals uh, in male cats back into the bladder, give them a chance to dissolve and then maybe pass. Um, The the usual thing with these guys um, is that very often um, we're able to, through the Relatively large uh, urethra, where particularly those distal stones, some gentle manipulation. Um, and you know what a fan I am not of the toothpaste method, but often some gentle manipulation is enough to position the stone in such a way that it can be um, it can be removed. Um, so we're probably doing things a little bit differently to what people if they just transpose their their um their cat technique. Onto guinea pigs, um, it might not necessarily work exactly
1: the same way. Yes, well, similarly, I, I, I majority of these, I will anaesthetise them. I'll have the guinea pig in dorsal recumbency, and then I'll probably infuse a little bit of local anaesthesia, or even at least some xylocaine on a on a tomcat catheter, and that's what I tend to use, Mark, for. Catheterise in them um, if if um, I'm doing that before I before I gently um, potentially squeeze out that little um, little urethral stone. Um, and they're just the standard Tomcat cat catheters that I'd be using um, f- for that animal and it works quite well, oh, Well, they work quite well. Um, but yes, once I have them anaesthetised, I think the trick there is that you have that animal relaxed as well and those ones that um, if you attempt to potentially squeeze out that urethral stone while it's awake, um, it, it's not only uncomfortable, you're less likely to to have it um, um, pop out because of the um, urethral spasm you cause in by squeezing it when, when the animal's awake there. Um, a fair number of the female ones, they, I see they have a, a urethral strain that's almost right at the tip there of the vulva or the um, urethral output there, and um, I do a little um, incision using a scalpel um, and leave that open um, And um, you incise over that um, stone and um, then you gently express it. um, And um, I leave that open, Mark, to just sort of heal itself and they seem to do quite well. But ideally I'd be, um, well, I would be um, um, catheterizing that bladder as well and and, um, flushing it at the same time um, to make sure we get rid of any sludge there with them. Um, I don't, I'm just thinking as I'm speaking there, Mark, I, I don't think I've had a had a guinea pig where I've actually sutured in a, a um, urethra catheter mark. I just um, pop it in there and flush it and then then remove it. Have you ever left them no, in, in place? And usually I find that um,
0: those sort of manipulations with guinea pigs, uh, you know, they're often um, more, the, the, the guinea pigs will re- respond to those persistent uh, um, catheters by going off their food and developing other, uh, metabolic problems and so much like you we're pretty keen to uh, flush the bladder um, and uh, get the catheter out and have the guinea pig uh, as pain-free as possible and uh, appliance-free as possible as they wake up. Um, do you find, I've got a question for you Brendan, when we um, look at our, our other common herbivore, rabbits, we very regularly see um, that uh, uh, plaster of Paris setting like sludge in our um, in some of our rabbits, um, and we have some you know in-house theories about how they occur um, as a result of slight aberrations of normal calcium metabolism in the rabbit. I don't we don't see nearly as many guinea pigs that have that sludge. If they do have um, residual calcium uroliths, that they, it tends to be sandier and. Um, and uh and less sludge like is that your experience brendan
1: yes definitely yeah and i think that's an apt description yeah sand type um material rather than the classic sort of sludgy um chalky material that that does form a bit of a And you described it well, sort of that plaster of Paris. So it forms this sort of glue or this, um, well, sludge (laughs) in in the rabbits compared with the guinea pigs, yes. So um, what do you do with the ones that have the bladder stones?
0: Oh, the guinea pigs pigs? that have... So the ones that have stones, um, we uh, do, as you've said, uh, if it's sandy and we think, oh, this is going to be something that we can uh, fill the bladder up, aspirate fill the bladder up aspirate and hopefully remove that uh, very uh, fine set of uh, uh cystic calculi then um we do that and and that solves the problem but there definitely are the ones that uh, we find a, a urethral stone and then we check the bladder and there's a bloody gigantic thing in there um and our our um tactic there is to chop them out. Um, we uh, open them up and get them out. We generally find that we're not in a situation where we can um, uh, where we can uh, dissolve them. dissolution is not something that uh, that despite some uh, talk about um, the possibility of techniques to dissolve them, um, we haven't been able to make that happen and so surgically uh,
1: removing them is the tactic we apply. Yes, as do we, Mark. And I think the difficulty there is that, and it's frustrating and I certainly warn the clients, is you may have one guinea pig and you remove a, a large bladder stone. And, and the, the surgical technique's the same sort of approach that we do with other species. It's exteriorizing that that bladder um, or at least getting access to it and um, opening up the bladder, flushing it, packing off the abdomen there, um, flush removing the stone, flushing and, and repairing that um, bladder wall and routine closure. And, and the frustrating thing is you may do that with one guinea pig and it um, never looks back and it doesn't have any further issues and um, you do the next guinea pig and three or four weeks later it has another bladder stone there. And I think that's the difficulty with with not knowing how this whole process works of that those calcium-based um, stones that these guinea pigs get um, how to prevent them um, you know I think somebody way smarter than me which won't take much um, in the future will we'll, we'll perhaps um, find a, find the solution um, so to speak, to it and um, we may be able to put them on some sort of preventative diet um, or, or, or dissolution diet, as you, as you mentioned. Um, but at, at this stage, I, I warn the clients that it can be very, very frustrating and I don't have any predictors as far as which patient will do well post-operatively and not not recur with, it, with a bladder stone and others that um, will end up um, being fine forever. So, I paint a bit of a little bit of a bleak picture to the clients, and I say, "Look, let's at least have a crack at it um, one go, and we'll see what happens. And if a, a stone comes back, then they need to start thinking about quality of life as well as costs of going back in there, and potential issues with further adhesions of the bladder and all those sorts of things with making the surgery."
0: I've got a couple of questions for you, Brendan. Um, the but, first one. The first one is. Yeah. Sure. Um, uh, and. Um, I preface this question with the uh, the qualifier that it is an out-and-out out, uh, promotion of one of our sponsors' uh, products. Um, when we do this procedure, I get great value from the Lone Star Retractor. When in, uh, in uh, providing retraction of the abdominal contents to um, get in and work with that bladder, um, it, that's a, a huge boon to our surgical technique in these situations. Do you use the Lone Star Retractor on these guinea pig bladder surgeries?
1: Yes, absolutely. Not not always because <laughs> I forget and I get halfway through the surgery and I think, why haven't I been using the retractor? And that's the only reason why because, um, yeah, once you've got it, it's... Easy to use and um, last for ages. And, and yeah, it sounds like a bit of a plug, but I, I use I use the product because it's a bloody good product, mate. Um, yeah, um, and I try not to with piggies because they're so fragile with a lot of things with surgical wise compared with other species, even with our our friends the rabbits that we often semi compare them to. I just find guinea pigs tend to spit the dummy a lot lot quicker with um, major procedures. Um, I try and make my incisions, especially that skin incision, a lot lot smaller than I would in another species. Mark, so using something like the retractor helps a hell of a lot. Trying to open up that um, open that that in surgical site to get that's um, a great position because yeah.
0: I you routinely would be saying to inexperienced surgeons that the best thing to do is give yourself you know. They, the what's the usual thing that said, incisions heal um, side to side, not along the length. But um, uh, guinea pigs are one of the species where I would say that if you can make that incision a good deal smaller, um, then the complications that arise are, are, are clearly less. Um, so, so the other thing yes. I was going to ask was um, uh, 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 antibiotics, um, urinary tract infections, uh, do you see a correlation between the production of um, of these stones and um, do you see uh, um, a correlation between them and, and an infection or uh, do you treat these cases with antibiotics and why?
1: Uh, that's a loaded <laughs> question, isn't it, Mark? <laughs> you love throwing those ones at me. Um, well, let me talk around that a little bit. I, I think we see some guinea pigs that get the equivalent of the... the, the the fluted cats mark, um the F L U T D. So that that may be no infectious process at all and we get a stressed out guinea pig and or rabbits as well. Um that sure they may have a little bit of sludge there, but my personal opinion there's no scientific data to back it up is that we may have some some Equivalency of those, um, those cats that, um, have that sort of inflammatory, um, stress response there and, and that it is not related to an infectious process at all. Um, and the follow up from that is that I personally do, do use a fair bit of, um, the, 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 the type, um, products with, with some of these, um, Guinea pigs with um, apparent success with them, so so that'd be my first comment. And I'd just quickly throw that back to you. Do you do you um, um, do similar or not? Or do you do you, you um, um, can, have you ever considered that as a possibility? we we think
0: without having conferred, we think along the same lines. I I definitely see occasional guinea pigs who have urinary tract infections, um, and we identify those. You know, they have very Close proximity between the opening of the urethra and and the um, ground and the anus, and so it's hardly surprising that as they age and um, their behaviour changes, that they might develop UTIs, and we identify those with cystocentesis samples. Um, but I don't cor- There's no. Um, correlation in my mind between the ones that have utis and the ones that develop stones so i think they're two independent pathological processes um and uh and so i think um you're exactly right and similarly uh without any basis in um scientific uh studies uh we i think there is you know that um in lining of the bladder that uh Uh, that the pentosan uh, purportedly uh, returns to normal um, and using pentosan as a consequence um, may help the inner health of the mucosa of the bladder. Um, We certainly do the same thing and get the same result, although I do, I sometimes wonder whether the urinary tract problems are the result of um, arthritis that are responding to cartrophin or whether we're directly helping the health of the bladder but um, like I said we'll wait for scientists to figure that out um, and give
1: us the answer last yes. question Brendan but
0: oh, well, still get I, the- I'm
1: still answering <laughs> your, your other question mate um, although you, par- you, you partially answered it yourself yes I totally agree with the possibility of um, Arthritis and and spinal issues as well and and definitely the same in rabbits um, in that um, you may see a response with a rabbit that has um, secondary urinary tract issues and it's just because it doesn't squat properly, it's got a sore back or sore hips or it's an osteoarthritic animal and therefore it's not um, been able to urinate correctly, um, and it ends up with a bit of urine scald and then secondary ascending infections. And, um, yeah, I agree totally with that, with it. Um, and, yeah, the point about the, um, which is what um, the question you're throwing at me regarding the bladder stones and neurotract tract infections um, in guinea pig's ear, I agree, Mark, and I think the difference is it's not, as far as I know, it's not like, Struvite infections, for instance, in cats, where there's that direct association between the bacteria and the, um, and the production of, um, um, the stones and the crystals there and the formation of those stones. Um, we just don't know how, it, how what happens with the, with the, um, whole process of the stone formation of those calcium type stones in, in guinea pigs. And yes, I, I agree in that certainly initially, um, and, and a fair number of the cases that they are not, I don't think anyway are um, are infectious um, um, etiologies with them. Um, they may become secondary once they once they get that bladder stone that's starting to irritate the bladder, and they get in that sandy material, and then they are starting to strain, and then. Subsequent urine scald and then ascending infections from there. But yeah, um, you may, may take a sample from a, 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 a guinea pig that has a, a, a urinary stri- stone that you detected on a radiograph and the animal was in the clinic for some other condition completely different. And you detected a, a large urinary stone and you take an aspirate from, from a cysto sample and um, nothing is cultured from it. Yeah. So that's my long-winded answer to say yeah, I agree with you totally Mark of what you were saying there. Um the other question oh, you had I was going was... to
0: quickly ask your opinion uh over the years we have um attempted two um two of the supportive treatments in these guinea pigs particularly um I'm referring to uh potassium citrate um that uh, that at least uh in the test tube should help uh, prevent the the um, formation of calcium carbonate stones, um, and uh, and also limit diet dietary control of uh, calcium rich sources, particularly lucerne hay. But my, I don't know, Brendan, like the where. I don't see, in my experience, I haven't seen either of those treatments make a significant difference. The the, the pattern you described, that um, some of the guinea pigs are uh, just going to relapse into recurrent stone formation um, and others are just going to um, have that stone removed and, and settle down, seems to be independent of whether we support them with potassium citrate or uh, loosen and alfalfa. Uh, Low diets. Um, what's your been your experience been with those ancillary treatments?
1: Yeah, I basically <laughs> don't bother. Um, what what I recommend <laughs> to clients is that they encourage water intake, um, and if the diet was low in water intake, although I feed in a, a large percentage of, 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 of pellets or the horrible mixes, then I get them off that and I get them and I ask the clients to make sure they have at least two water um, containers for these animals, not just one sipper, um, a little a little um, bowl as well um, and also wet the vegetables um, and perhaps feed in some higher moisture content Um vegetables and, and vegetable matter, you know, things like celery and all those sorts of things. So we're encouraging diuresis with them and encouraging them to flush out those kidneys and produce more more urine and, and keep that flow happening. That's that's the thing I really stress with them. As far as limiting the calcium intake, um, and and potential effects that would have on stopping the prevention of those urolits, yeah, I I, I I, think it does stuff all, Mark. Um, so, you know, that's my answer to it. And um, I think we're kidding ourselves. And, I, and because I... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> because I think, because I, and that's the same with rabbits. Because I think you try and alter the the, the calcium content of the, of the feed you give into them, and, and that animal will just adapt. and And we know certainly in rabbits that they can actively and passively absorb calcium in their gut, depending on what the animal <laughs> is thinking at that particular time. So um, I, I think it's dangerous going the other way, and 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 for instance, putting them on a really low calcium diet. And I'm talking rabbits as well as guinea pigs um because we may introduce other other problems um with that animal so i tend to leave the diet alone mark and and just try and encourage them to 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 the fluid intake a little bit similar, analogous to i suppose with those you know those long-term chronic renal failure cats older renal failure cats you get where you're just trying to get lots of fluids into them you know and I, I still oh, I haven't had one for a while but you know I, I used to have great success with some of these cats that where you you know the owners would even get subcutaneous fluids a few times a week at home and it seemed to work quite well with um, keeping things going with that. Those and and off
0: while it works cats. for cats, that's not what we're suggesting for guinea pigs. But there's two other quick points. No. Um, uh, and I agree with you. Increasing water turnover um, definitely seems to help these guys. Um, I like also, you know, even multiple waterers. I think there's some in some multi-guinea pig houses, enclosures, whatever, um, that some guinea pigs might, uh, might be... Um, not in the same... They might be held from having as much water as they would if they had free access. So I think multiple waters. And the other thing I like to get clients to do is um, uh, create things for the guinea pigs to do. I think that, um, you know, they're, they're... If if the animals are slightly overweight and sedentary, these problems are much more likely. And so um, if they're active, if they have reasons to forage, if they have things to climb and um, just the gentle agitation of the contents of the bladder mean that they're less likely to sit there and they're more likely to urinate more frequently and empty them out before they get to a dangerous stage.
1: Yes, speaking of agitation, Mark, do you have <laughs> clients that um, use those um, wobble boards and, and these little, um, um, that they buy those little um, scientific mixes, you know, for mixing solutions in chemistry classes and they use them for their guinea pigs? I, I have, have, you heard, have I've heard of have them, but we gone. haven't had any clients that have had them. Yeah, we've had a few clients. So they basically, it's like, you know, you go to the big shopping centres and they're trying to f- sell you those um, those fat blasters, you know, where you stand <laughs> on the thing and it wobbles. Um, and all it ends up doing is um, somebody stands on it and everybody else is is quietly laughing at somebody um, with their bits wobbling. Um, so I don't think it's a very nice thing to to do, laugh at people like that. <laughs> you shouldn't be doing that. Um so, yeah, it's those wobbly, wobbly sort of machines. And, ah, oh, yeah, I think it's a bit of hocus pocus, Mark. I'm getting a little bit angry, um, about some of these, uh, some of these techniques that people use. Um, yes, so that's my answer to that. I think we should get out of here before, um, I get, um, I get too angry. I need to get out and, um, take some photos or, or do a little bit of, um, little bit of woodwork i've got another project on the go at the moment mark and i might talk to you talk to our listeners about that next week so um yeah if you want more information about guinea pig urinary tract issues go and listen to episode two and i'm sure you have a good laugh there because um um we were very raw at that stage mark although we still are aren't we we'll see you next week